The, the theme that I want to explore today is taking difficulties as the path. So you were right on cue. <laughs> we travel together, actually. So you <laughs> ask this question right before the, the talk is to begin. So, um, and I was uh, having dinner with my sister a few days ago, and I I told her that I was going to talk on the theme of taking difficulties in the path as the path, and she said, "What a bummer." <laughs> uh, and then she said, "Of course, I know it's a really important topic." So, um, actually, I hope it's not a bummer, and I actually find the theme of of looking into how to work with difficulties and how to take them as the path to be actually very inspiring and and very um, very moving. Um, and as usual, I'm giving this talk partly to talk to myself, to remind myself. I think I said one of the other talks I gave here that I often find myself um, if I'm giving a talk saying, you should really listen to that guy. <laughs> um, so there's, when we can take difficulties as part of our path, a lot of things happen. We, I think we gain a tremendous uh, spaciousness because in some ways, we're not, we're not segmenting our lives. We're not uh, dividing our lives into the times when we're really feeling good and practicing and the, the, the difficult times. That we're, when we can uh, take difficulties as the path, we, our practice becomes more continuous, less interrupted. We don't divide it so much into the times when we're really spiritual and the times when we're not. Uh, and that's a, big, that's a big issue. That's a big issue for, for most of us. When we can, when we can uh, take difficulties as the path, we really, are, we really move out of our usual conditioning, which, is, which continues no matter probably how long we do spiritual practice to some extent. And that conditioning is that we essentially want to have pleasant experiences and want the unpleasant experiences to go away. I was um, deciding to do this theme partly because I went from a period of um, after the long retreat in uh, February to a period, it was a period of uh, mostly very happy, spacious, deep, uh, somewhat empty, and and uh, that lasted for quite a while. And you remember, last time I was here, I was I had to deal with those 300 emails right after the retreat, and some of them are still not dealt with, to be honest. But um, I went from that period to a period which was had had more turmoil, and and a lot of it was connected around difficulties with uh, relationship. And, and so I felt that 
it's just very, so important to somehow to see those difficulties as path. And I could feel in myself uh, the kind of a fantasy that there shouldn't be difficulties in my life. This deep fantasy that I think we all share. Somehow, and it's, it's totally supported by the culture and the advertising, you know, this notion that we can, our life can just be about, I don't know, if you, if you watch a TV ad, it's, our, our life can be about driving down a beautiful highway in a new car with a beautiful partner, you know, maybe with very attractive children in the back seat, <laughs> you know, uh, going to some secluded getaway, having great food, and this is what life is about, you know. And, and, and I was in touch with that fantasy that, oh, there are difficulties. Why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening. You know, despite all the Dharma talks I've heard or all the practice I've done, I, this, it's strong, this kind of uh, fantasy about how our lives would be. And it, it gets especially strong if we may think of ourselves as spiritual or having done a lot of inner work. And then we have difficulties. And... What do we, you know, we, we may tell ourselves, this is a sure sign that I'm not very developed. <laughs> right? Do you know that voice? <laughs> or, I'm having difficulties. What's my problem? You know, or, or I must be to blame. You know, there are difficulties, therefore I'm rotten. Sort of the... the Unacknowledged syllogism inside our inside our minds. Um, so so we, no matter how much practice we do, we still continue to try to defend ourselves against the difficult experiences. We are fearful of a whole set of experiences that, and, and we try to avoid parts of our lives. You know, some of us may not want to deal with conflict. Some of us may not want to deal with um, certain kinds of um, issues. You know, we may, you know, I, I was basically raised to be nice and to not deal with certain areas because I was fearful of going into them. And, you know, and I think many of you know that the, these fears of difficulties can result in us giving away large parts of our life. I think most of us know that, that, that when we, that the fear of going into difficulties, whether it's a fear of power or conflict or maybe sexuality or um, being ourselves, that we can, we can, um, do all sorts of things to avoid those experiences. And uh, a friend of mine who's a therapist uh, mentioned five or six typical ways that we try to avoid difficulties. In psychological language, these are called defense mechanisms. <laughs> you know, that we, and, and it's almost like when we see these defenses rising in our minds, we can know that there's some desire to avoid difficulty, some way that we're still caught in that old pattern of trying to push away 
the unpleasant, avoid the difficulties, and grab hold of the pleasant. And of course, the essence of Buddhist practice is to work with that conditioning. The core teachings of the Buddha are to look into and through awareness, through a compassionate awareness, to slowly deconstruct the, the, the conditioning that will have us set up these defenses to avoid certain areas of our life, certain kinds of experiences, and will have us try to grab hold of what we take to be pleasant. So I wanted to mention briefly these areas because naming them and seeing them can be very helpful in the process, in the work of opening to difficulties. Um, a, ma- a main one that many of us use is that when there's a difficulty, when there's something difficult that arises, we move very quickly to judgment or blame or maybe some kind of scapegoating or attacking. You know, we do this individually, we do this as a culture. You know, just, just think of it. I mean, the logic is basically, um, I'm having, I'm having a difficult experience. Someone must be to blame, right? So if I'm having, and our, and our minds just go there automatically. I'm, you know, I'm having a difficult experience with this person, and so we move quickly to judgment. Now, actually, we don't, we're not really that conscious that we're doing this. We're not, con- we don't, we're not really conscious that I'm having a difficult experience. We just go to judgment. You know, someone says something, and actually we may not even know that we're feeling pains, and we go right to judgment. So, um, I think I told you uh, in one of the last talks I gave about uh, the judgment practice that I was doing uh, for a number of months, where whenever a judgment would come up, I would try to be with the thoughts, and then go right to the, the area of the heart and see what was there. And what I found over and over again was that there would be some experience I would have, you know, just, just as simple as being on the food line at a retreat and having it take a long time, right? As simple an experience as that. And my mind would instantly go to, why can't the cooks get it together better so that we move more quickly through the food line, right? And what this judgment practice did was I checked out what was happening. And instead of going right to that kind of judgment, I would actually go to the level of the heart, sort of the soft place in the heart, and I could feel, oh, there's a little bit of pain about waiting. There's impatience. And I did this over and over with all the kinds of judgments that came up, and I found that almost always they were a cover for not wanting to feel something. For not wanting, you know, and the deeper ones are about not wanting to feel maybe some sadness or disappointment. You know, if, if someone, if, if I'm in a meeting and someone says something that um, uh, maybe, maybe I've said something and someone just goes off to a totally new topic and I'll, I may feel judgmental and say, you know, that person is just going off on a new topic. But actually, if I check out in my heart, there's a feeling maybe of pain of not being heard or not being listened to. And so in that kind of practice, uh, you know, I found myself just seeing over and over again how the judgment is a kind of defense against feeling that pain. 
And that, that, that wasn't something I knew in the beginning. It was something that came only from that kind of uh, meditated inquiry. And I think it's that case with all of these kind of defenses, because they're really ways that we don't want to feel what's there, and we somehow take, in this, this case, I would take the judgment as the real action, and I wouldn't feel the underlying pain. And so we can, we can think of other kinds of ways that we don't want to look at what's difficult. Uh, we may just withdraw. We may say to ourselves, I'll avoid situations where, which are unpleasant, and we just withdraw. You know, and we do this as individuals, and we do this as a culture. We just, as a culture, we just don't want to look at certain things in our collective lives. You know, we don't want to look at certain at the fact that, you know, what is it, 30 or 40 percent of children in our society live in poverty. I think it's I think it's a figure like that. It's a very large figure. At least I know it's at least 20 or 25 percent. We don't want to look at the destruction of the environment collectively. You know, there's this tremendous way that we avoid those kind of issues, and in very much the same way that we may avoid them individually. We may also find that our own way of not dealing with difficulties is just to become distracted and confused, that we may, uh, we, and, and sort of the inner way that we work is to, we don't, I don't have to feel this because all these other things are happening, because the television is on, or I'm having all these sensations from alcohol or whatever. And, and, that's really at the basis for a lot of this, uh, for a lot of the addiction in our society. There may be denial. There may be some kind of way that we go along with things in a resentful way. You know, I have these difficulties, but and I don't like it, but I have no choice. You know, um, I just have. This is my life, and I don't like it. And one of the last kinds of defenses is, is my my friend calls it whining and complaining. <laughs> Again, which should be seen as a way of avoiding really dealing with difficulties. Now, the, I think we could really say that the heart of this practice is developing a different approach. The heart of this practice is learning to be open to all parts of our lives. It's about learning to be comfortable with what's unpleasant and not grab hold of what's pleasant. That's the heart of this practice. And the core finding of the Buddha is that that very simple, direct practice is enough for our freedom. That if we take that teaching in a radical way, it's a doorway. It's a doorway to our freedom. And so, the invitation is to open to what's difficult. It's also to open to what's really beautiful and positive. And my own experience has been that actually to the extent that I open to difficulties, I really open my heart and my mind more fully, and I'm much more fully there for what's beautiful and what's wonderful and mysterious and amazing. There's some way that when we let ourselves be at the, um, under the control 
of the fear of our difficulties, we close down. And we're actually not so present for what's wonderful and beautiful. And we don't, we don't quite know that. We think we can have what's wonderful and beautiful and avoid the difficulties. That's the fantasy I was talking about earlier. And so, but it's actually the case that opening up to the difficulties opens our minds and our hearts to what's wonderful and to the, the deeper qualities of ourselves and of life. That's certainly what I have found. And it's certainly what I think the teachings are about. There's a Tibetan teaching called the, um, called the Lojong Practices, which is completely about this practice. Some of you may know this. And it's, it's a group of, uh, I believe, 51 slogans that are used especially for everyday practice. And at the heart of this is the slogan, transform all obstacles into the path. And it's, a, and it's actually a very inspiring suggestion for, for our practice. Um, and I think those of, those of us who have been doing this practice for a while know, know this from our own experience. We know that part of the practice that we do is to be able to be with the knee pain or to be with the back pain and to learn a different way of being with those sensations than the usual ones. And I know for myself, when I was beginning meditation, one of the great revelations was that I could actually hang out with, with what was unpleasant for a while and see that I wasn't going to die. Have you had that experience? <laughs> Has anyone died? <laughs> um, and, and one can see that actually that there's just this tremendous energy that we have trying to avoid very small unpleasant experiences. Has anyone ever done meditation and had a mosquito land on you? I think it, at, at the time, mosquitoes seemed far more terrifying than the prospects of death, suffering, or the extinction of the planet. <laughs> you know? uh, and you can see that we have this incredible resistance just to a little bit of a sting, right? And it's amazing. And we learn, now mosquitoes are advanced practice, but the knee pain, <laughs> the knee pain, and in the beginning, we can be with that, and we can learn to relax. And we learn this uh, mysterious fact that most of what we experience is pain, and what most of what we experience is difficulty, is not the original presenting experience, but it's our resistance to that presenting experience. And we can see that when we sit, that it's not the sensation uh, of the knee pain that's actually the big problem. It's our tensing. It's our contracting around the sensation. I've heard uh, medical doctors say that as much as 80% of what people experience as pain is not the presenting phenomenon, but the resistance. It's something to explore. It's something that we can find. It's one of the actually the great secrets that's disclosed by this practice that most of what we're afraid of is actually not there. That's, that's a deep one. 
most of what we're afraid of is not actually present. It's not actually there. It's our contraction around what's actually there that creates something far larger than what's there. And so this simple practice of being present with what's there gradually deconstructs that 80%. And by that time, the 20% isn't a big deal. That's how it works. That's how this practice works. Now, I want to just say one thing. I'm focusing on difficulties. And I want to just say that in practice, um, this is, difficulties are one part of practice. And I'm focusing on that today. But it's really important to know that there's kind of, in my experience, there's been kind of a, a, a rhythm in which sometimes I'm really working with what's um, happy, blissful, insightful as, as primary. In fact, um, I don't want to set up comparing mine, but this was the nature of the first two years of my practice, primarily, that I would find just insight and, and a lot of happiness and bliss and sort of feeling of coming home in doing this practice. And that then made it possible to have the confidence and the faith that actually what happened is then it opened up to more, more difficulties. And I found that there's kind of a, a rhythm and a balance between the phases that we somehow need often to find a refuge in the practice where we just see we can, you know, especially if we're having difficulties in our outer lives, the practice can be amazing as a refuge. And the, the last thing we want to hear is someone talking about how we should open up to difficulties, right? I mean, there's a part of practice which is really a refuge. And it's important to know if this is kind of a phase we're in, where it's really an opening to what's uh, pleasant and beautiful, and we're kind of healing. There's a real healing aspect to this practice where we can just be present and have a refuge from what's difficult and be with like-minded people and, and really, in a way, um, come to find more appreciation and love just for ourselves and for our being. Because sometimes life can make us make that hard. We can feel a little bit battered. And so there's part of the practice which has that as a phase where we're, we're maybe just really developing a deeper peace than we've ever experienced and having insights. And it can be mostly positive. And that gives us the, uh, I think, the energy, the confidence then to move to the phase of opening to difficulties. Of course, this isn't something that we control <laughs> and just say, all right, it's time for the happy phase. <laughs> you know, Or, OK, I'm ready for the difficulties. And then the happiness continues. Why aren't the difficulties happening? <laughs> it's not, it's not, you know, life has its own logic and rhythm, but there's, there's a, it's important to know that, and, and that's really the backdrop for me talking about difficulties, that both phases are really important. And sometimes it's, it's good to know where, what phase one is in, because it can help one to, to make some choices about, oh, what I really need now is not to just face all those difficulties. I could really use a time of healing or of just being developing more peace, or it could be the other, you know, um, fairly confident now, feel peaceful, maybe I can open to some things that I haven't wanted to open to. And of course, having uh, a community and uh, maybe a teacher that one's working with can be very helpful for, for knowing which of those phases is happening. Now, if we can open up 
to difficulties, we learn these secrets. And I want to mention uh, six secrets uh, that we learn. And they're not really secret secrets, they're open secrets. But they're, they're, they are uh, insights that can totally shift our lives. And to me, these are things that I've learned, these are insights that I've learned in the process of opening to what's difficult. The first is one that I mentioned. It's that ultimately, it's less energy to open up to our difficulties than to resist them. And I gave those examples of the knee pain and of, of the other experiences, but that's something that's really, uh, I think that's really true generally. It's true of our emotional life. It's true of our life in general. That this quality whereby this uh, original presenting sensation can just be uh, contracted around. We can have all these stories. And this is something which is very valuable to see in the practice. We can see how when we have a difficulty or maybe something that's painful, we can see how there's contraction physically, emotionally, mentally. We can see the thoughts proliferate. There's even a uh, technical Buddhist term for this. It's called papancha, which uh, translates as conceptual proliferation. That we have a sensation and we can just feel the cartoon bubbles forming around it. That's part of that 80%. That's part of that quality of resistance very often. A second secret, a second, okay, I'm, this is, I could, I sh- maybe I should have told my sister I was not talking about opening to difficulties, but telling wonderful secrets. And then she'd say, oh, can I come? <laughs> so She's at work. <laughs> uh, the second secret is that we're, uh, it, it's that we're really held in bondage by the fears of our difficulties that we have. And that when we open to the difficulties, it's very often not as bad as we think. I see nods. That means you've, you've experienced that. In fact, often when we face our difficulties, many of them fall away or dissolve amazingly quickly. And I want to tell a story uh, related to that. Um, this is a story from when I was on retreat. It was about 10 or 11 years ago. And I was doing a long retreat at uh, Gaia House in England. And I was working with uh, Christina Feldman and Christopher Titmus, who, who come here, and many of you uh, know them. And I was wanting to go into more solitude in this retreat. And I was just staying in a small little room that was, we called it a kuti, which is like a, the, it's like the uh, word that's used in Thailand for a little meditation cottage. And I was just in this very small room in a cottage separate from the main house at that time, which Gaia House had, which was, which was where uh, the other meditators stayed and where there was a meditation room. And for the first week or two, I was, um, I stayed in the hall, I sat in the hall a few times. Of course, we were in silence, but I was staying in the hall and I was gradually moving, sitting, I was starting to sit just in my, my room all the time. I would do walking meditation outside, 
but there was there was a lot of solitude. I didn't didn't really have much contact with any people except for every three or four days I would talk for about fifteen minutes with one of the uh, teachers. And <clears throat> I wanted to. Um, I wanted to go a little deeper into solitude, and so I decided just to do all my sitting in this <clears throat> small room in the cottage, and also to uh, bring my meals back to the room so I wouldn't eat with the other yogis in silence, with the other meditators in the main house. And I started doing this. I was there for three months. I started doing this after about two weeks. And when I started... Um, eating by myself and spending all the time by myself, I noticed that, um, I think I started on a Friday, and I started during the eating, I started to feel very nauseous. And I would, and it continued, and my body started feeling very, very heavy. I was fairly aware and concentrated, but I just was feeling a lot of nausea and, and um, just a deep heaviness in my body. Just like something was really um, um, bothering me, or something very, very hard, and I just stayed with that for a few days, and I was feeling kind of grim and uh, not very happy, quite concentrated, <laughs> not very happy, and um, this just went on for a few days, and uh, I think on a Monday. I met with uh, Christopher, and I told him what was happening, and he said, well, in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment, how would you look at your practice? And you, some of you know that teaching. It's, it's the seven factors of enlightenment, or the factors of a sort of an open mind and heart, the, the qualities of an awake being, and their qualities like uh, mindfulness and concentration and effort. And the one that I went to in that list was I said, well, there's no joy. <laughs> there's one of the factors is joy uh, and rapture. And I said, there's none of that. <laughs> you know. And, and he said, well, what would it take to bring that out? And I said, well, I know very well what it would take. I think there's something about uh, eating by myself which has brought this on. And I, and I would go back to eating with the others. And then there are other things. I can just be with nature and look at spider webs and hear the birds and I think that would really, I'd come back to balance. And so um, I did that. And I went back to eating. And within, you know, like an hour or two, the nausea and the uh, heaviness, maybe, maybe it was more than an hour or two, but fairly quickly, the nausea and the heaviness went away. And I was feeling a lot of joy. And I was kind of happy. Oh, I can just make these adjustments and really shift, uh, and shift my sense of well-being. And I kind of went along, kind of a little bit, a little bit proud, probably. <laughs> you know, went along with the practice, and then the next, the next uh, on Friday. This is a few days later. On Friday, I had an interview with uh, Christina, and I told her the story, and she said, "Well, uh, what about what about the the nausea? And what about that heaviness? And what about the fear that you were saying you really felt some with that uh, uh, with with those bodily sensations? What about that?" I said, oh yeah, what about that? <laughs> and she said, well, maybe you'd like to go back and look at that. I said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you know? and, and I said, I'll do it. 
And I remember I interviewed with her in the morning, and I said, I'm not going to do it for lunch. <laughs> you know how the mind works in those situations? Right? I'm not, you know, I want to do it, but not quite yet. And so um, I said, dinner, or the, the, e the light evening meal. Then, that's when I'll come back and sit by myself. And so, you know, from 10 in the morning, Till the evening meal, whenever that was, five or five thirty or something, I, I would just uh, sit there, and I was you know, stealing myself. And when that nausea and heaviness and fear comes, I'm just going to be a warrior. I'm just going to really be strong, and deal with it. I was giving myself all these pep talks and reading about the bodhisattva and just really getting ready and you know just just getting ready. And you know I'm going to sit there, and when the nausea comes, I'm just going to be present and just hang out with it. And I'm going to I'm ready to be with it, you know, and and so of course, and the hours came. I was really kind of anxious and apprehensive, and what's going to happen? And you know, is, am I going to go back to that difficult? But you know, this is like again, this is how our minds work. And okay, and so the hour comes. I go with you know some trepidation. I get my meal because because what what was the situation was that somehow the way my psyche was working, some line was crossed when I, some line was crossed when I um, had that further solitude. I mean, that's what it must be, that some line was crossed which brought about some kind of fear. Okay, and I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what the mechanics of it are, but some, there was some way that, that there was some way that my psyche interpreted that as it was okay before, but now it's not okay. You know, this level of solitude that a lot of people would find scary of you know, not talking for three months and, and um, being mostly by myself, that was okay, but that one further level crossed something, you know. And so, okay, so I go back, I, um, I go to the, get the food, I bring it back, I sit down, I'm remembering all my, you know, my vows and my, I'm just going to do it. And I just sat there and I, I waited for the nausea. I waited for the heaviness. Nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened that evening, and nothing happened for the rest of the, for another two months. There was no, no nausea. Nothing came. And I said, whoa, this is something, this is something to look at. It's as if when we face our demons, they flee very often. Or at least some, something like that must have been at work in that situation, that, that my readiness to look at that meant that some level of fear was gone. And of course there'd be situations where we'd look at it and that still would be there, but in this situation it just dissolved and it wasn't there. And you know, I think this is a theme that you find in a lot of uh, mythology and folklore, this quality that when we're ready to look at the demons, they get transformed. You know, and there's the story, you know, think of something like Beauty and the Beast, you know? When the, when the beauty is able to really look closely at the beast, the beast gets transformed into something beautiful in that story. Or when 
in the stories of uh, the great Tibetan meditator Milarepa. He's not afraid of the demons. They try to scare him, you know, they do their act. They, he's, he's meditating in a cave and these demons come and they, they yell and scream and they do what's worked with everyone else and they don't phase Milarepa. And eventually the demons change their nature and they say, I want to be your ally. You know, I want to use this energy that I have as a demon to help you. And there's something about that in facing the difficulties that some of them just shift like my fear. That doesn't mean I don't have any more fear, but something happened there. And it's also something happened that gave me a lot of confidence to go into similar situations. Because it's as if once one has done that once or twice or a few times, one gets a sense of the dynamic, you know. And we can also see the way that many, again, many of our fears have a quality of emptiness to them. And we can see that. And it's very, very um, empowering to do that. Another secret about being with our difficulties is that we actually learn tremendously from them. We may learn more from our difficulties than from our pleasant experiences. You know, there's a well-known learning theory that says that we actually learn the most when we're in our discomfort zone. Do you know that theory? It's a, it's a theory that says that we, are, that we have our comfort zone, we have our discomfort zone, and we have our overwhelm zone. And that most of what's really important is learning occurs in the discomfort zone which is really something very similar to what's being said here, and it's really the heart of, of this kind of practice. That when we can be with what's difficult, we can have those kind of insights, like, like happened for me looking at that fear, where I was thinking there, there's a story that uh, uh, Martin Luther King tells of when he was actually quite young, right at the beginning of his time in uh, Montgomery, when he was 25 years old, this would have been 1955, he was getting a lot of um, threatening phone calls. And he was, um, some of them threatened that there'd be some kind of a attack or bombing, and he had, a, he had a newborn child at that time. And he was rattled by it. And there was something that was very, very hard for him at that time, very difficult. And he, he tells the story of one evening, he had just got, he had just come home late from some meetings, and he, um, they didn't have answering machines in those days, but he just, he was up, and late at night, there were two or three really threatening phone calls, and he couldn't go to sleep. And he sat there, and he tried to deal with his fear and his anxiety. And he first just tried to have it, see if it would go away, and it didn't. He turned to his theology books. They didn't work. They seemed hollow. The words seemed overly abstract. And he just sat there, and I, I wanted to read something from his own writings about what happened at that point. He said, I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on Daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on Mama now. 
You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. And he sat at a table and he just sat with a cup of coffee and he came to some sense of, of some opening beyond himself. And he said this, I bow down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. It seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And something in that moment of difficulty when he was willing to be present there, something deeper in himself got awakened. And I think that's what happens when we can do that. And we need a lot of support. We need a lot of community. It's, it's, it, we sometimes need help to do that, but there's this quality of opening that we find things that we wouldn't know otherwise. Thomas Merton talks about how we really learn love most when we feel that our heart is turned to stone. And there are those moments when there's difficulty and we learn to stretch and open just a little bit. Thomas Merton says that's when we really learn about love and compassion. That's when we really learn about our own humanity, about how we share that with all other people. That's where we really learn about the, what links us really to, to, all, to all beings. And it's that kind of uh, opening to, to difficulty that is really the birthplace of that compassion and that sense of universal kinship, which, which, which comes out of our practice, which comes out of our lives. And it's, it's um, really something that when we can do that, when we can open up to our own difficulties, we actually, in doing that, we give gifts to others. And this is really the last secret that I want to mention <clears throat> is that when we open to our own difficulties, we give gifts to others. Um, John Tarrant, who's a Zen teacher who, <clears throat> who lives in Santa Rosa and wrote this very wonderful book called The Light Inside the Dark, which is really about this whole theme that I'm talking about today. And I really recommend it. It's probably, probably in the bookstore. He said, he said this, that um, when we open to our own difficulties, when we open to our, to our own pain, when we open to our own shadow, we prevent others from having to carry it for us. And we can think of that individually and we can think of that as a culture or as a society. If we as a society would open to our own pain and difficulties, which we really don't want to do, we would not have certain groups of people. Like African Americans have generally held a lot of the suffering and the pain of this culture for hundreds of years. And if we as a culture would open in that way, they wouldn't have to do it. Or if we would open to our, the, the suffering related to the earth, the animals and the earth wouldn't have to carry that for us. So there's a way that when we open to our own difficulties, we give, we serve others. Again, not what we think originally, but, but that, that is really the the secret that opening to difficulties 
connects us with our own beauty more, connects us with our own insights. It lets us live much freer of the typical fear that we usually carry around. It often yields these results that we are unbelievable, that so much can really drop away when we open. Sometimes quickly, sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes the deepest stuff, it may take a long while, but it can drop away and in doing so, we really open to these deeper qualities of ourselves that connect us with all others and that help us to really to serve others. And so this, it begins with being with the knee pain and it really goes in that, in that direction that I've just uh, outlined. So, thank you very much. So we have some time for um, for anything that that was brought up or discussed uh, discussed anything really. Yeah. In the beginning, you were talking about the Western idea of sort of romantic bliss and yeah. relationships, um, and I think there's the idea that you meet somebody and on your whole everything will just fall into place. Yeah. And, and, what, and yet. In most of the Buddhist writings, there's so much um, talk about the dangers of different kinds of attachment, yeah. attachment to an idea of your ego, or yeah. self-concept, attachment to future yeah. hopes and expectations, or to past memories and yeah. people and so forth. And I'm wondering if there's much talk at all about long-term committed relationship like a marriage yeah. in any of the traditional Buddhist Yeah. Um, well, you know, most Buddhist countries, monks and nuns don't marry. They do in Japan. <laughs> They're priests marry in Japan. Um, but, yeah, it's really the question of what's the difference between attachment and, and commitment. And it's, of course, it's, there's tricky, there's tricky material there, but um, there are, in, in the Buddhist tradition, commitment to the practice is completely vital. And so there, all, there are all these qualities of commitment, which is more to have one's intention set on freedom and, and on learning and exploration. And there are, there, there are terms in the Buddhist um, text that reflect that. I, I know that one of the key mental factors is aspiration, which sounds a little bit like desire, but it's really the aspiration to be free. And, and there's a, there are a lot of problems with the translations. The way that I prefer to think about the question of attachment is to really ask, and it really is very related to, to the talk, is to ask where is there a compulsive quality to it? Where is there an unconscious quality to it? And there's going to naturally be some of that in a committed relationship, but if that, but the question is, um, what is the real intention in that relationship? That would be, that would, that would be, that would relate to the core Buddhist teaching, which is to stress over and over again 
the centrality of intention. So in a committed relationship, what is the intention? Is it to have a good time or to uh, sort of find some refuge from the difficult world? Well, that can be valuable at some point, but that's a limited set of intentions. So it would be, is there a way that we could talk about a commitment to awaken together you know, and see what, what takes place? I think the other, um, it's a big question, we could have a whole talk on that, but the other thing that comes to mind is that it's really some sense of commitment and dedication that provides the container, as it were, for being able to be with difficulties. And it's nowhere more clear than in relationships. <laughs> right? You know, and some people think that the difficult state of relationships now is in part there because people don't have that sense of commitment or they flee at the first major difficulty or they, can, they don't have, we don't have the tools or the philosophy to be able to hang out with what's difficult in the context of a relationship. So it's that kind of commitment which really makes it uh, possible to, um, to learn. I think. So, so I think commitment is completely vital in this practice. It, it lets us hang in there, basically. And yet we have to see where the commitment is compulsive, or where there's, um, or where we're, we're unconscious. Yeah. could have talked more, but the time was getting short, so <laughs> the last secret got less, less time to be divulged. <laughs> so, um, and it's kind of counterintuitive in a way, that when we attend to our own difficulties, we help others. Uh, you might not think, it might feel selfish, you know, it might feel selfish, to, and, and even doing meditation can sometimes feel oh, I'm just part of the narcissistic California culture, you know, that my East Coast relatives complain about. (laughs) Uh, um, But there's something that's powerful about really uh, facing our own our own material and maybe Maybe we can think about it in the context of intimate relationships or um, a work situation or in the terms of the larger society that if, um, if I am in uh, a relationship and uh, I don't face my difficulties, I will go right to those defense mechanisms that I was talking about. And I will, when I have something that actually, I may not even know it, but it's actually difficult or painful for me, if I'm not in touch with that, if I, if I can't be aware of that, I will go right away to the judging, if that's my tendency. We, we all have our preferred ways of defending, you know. 
Some of us are judgers and attackers, others are withdrawers. Some of us do both, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I will, I as it were, will judge that person. I will judge my partner. And in a sense, my partner will have to deal with it. My stuff that I don't, that's right. And that, that's a very concrete example. My, How does it, how does it, my partner just has to deal with all my judgments coming at him or her, you know. My partner has, you know, my partner will find that I, that there are all these judgments coming. If I'm the partner, there's all these judgments coming at me, and this is a significant part of my relationship, and I have to deal with them. Or I have to deal with the, you know, the withdrawal, and I have all sorts, and that sets off, of course, these set off stuff in me, so it just proliferates. So if my partner is actually dealing with the underlying difficulty connected with judgment, then I am really served, you know, and I have to do the same. But that, that would be an example that makes it pretty concrete, you know. So if I'm, uh, if I'm doing my work, in other words, I really serve people, I serve, I serve the other. If I, as, um, if I, as a citizen of this culture, this society, take some responsibility for the collective problems that we have, uh, then if I take some responsibility for the continuing racism or sexism, that's pretty hard to know what to do sometimes. But if I take it and say, oh yeah, there are these problems in the society, and we collectively just don't want to deal with them, we kind of make believe that they're over to some extent, and, we are, and if, I, if I actually try to work with that, uh, I can have a big impact even if I do small things, because uh, basically I don't just leave it to certain groups to be scapegoated. You know, that if I can work on the issues of poverty or, or racism, then um, I don't just leave those groups isolated. You know, it's much harder if we can really be in touch with what's difficult for ourselves. We know that we're not that different <laughs> from others, and it's that um, you know, it's that compassion which can can motivate us to act, not sort of guilt for a situation or saying, "Oh, it's a good idea that I should deal with these social situations," but maybe some sense of compassion. You know, I know that in just a personal experience. Um, I was I was visiting. In the early part of the 90s, I took two trips to Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, the first time when it was still the Soviet Union. And I, um, I went back to the territory of the Holocaust. You know, and I, went, I actually went to where two of my grandparents had come from in Lithuania, which felt incredibly exotic because I had to, um, I, was in, I was actually visiting in Moscow and I had to take uh, like a 14-hour train and get an internal visa, and it took days to get just to go back there. And when I was there, I really got in touch with the history of the Holocaust, 
more than I'd ever, of course. And in Lithuania, um, 90% of the uh, population of 250,000 Jews there were murdered in a few years, you know, during the World War. And going into that territory and knowing that there probably were ancestors of mine, um, you know where my mind went? It actually went towards thinking of our situation here and the, 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 the difficulties and the conflicts between ethnic groups. That's where, that's where I went. When I was there, I thought, what would I do if I was a Christian in this country in 1938, you know, before the Nazis came? Because the fact is that the Lithuanians collaborated with the Nazis to a large extent. It's complex. There are a lot of reasons for that. But it's, and that's where my mind went, being in that situation. It's interesting, huh? Um, so, so it's actually this blessing that if we, if we actually work on our own difficulties, uh, we, we serve others, we connect, you know. We wouldn't think of it first. Yeah. 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 Um, right. If if one has to know that distinction, I think, or, or have people that want that are working with um, working with you to to know that, because uh, and of course the it's tricky because I in my mind can think, oh, that's overwhelming, and it actually can be workable, right, or vice versa. You know, so there's a lot of discernment that's necessary for for oneself. Um, but yeah, it's it's there. There are times, and this comes up in retreats, and it comes up in our lives when something actually is immense, and we can we can tell ourselves, "Oh, you should deal with this. You should just open to it, just like it was a knee pain, and it's not a knee pain." And so there are other, I think, other. Um, other ways of working with that that may not be like directly going into it and saying, please take me away. And it's really hard to know, you know, in, in those kind of situations, it, it takes like this tremendous discernment. I was thinking about this because there was, um, there was a friend, a good friend of mine, um, had an experience a few years ago where he had he'd done like 20 or 25 years of psycho-spiritual work. And he... Um, he took a uh, he took a, a, a drug. I think it may have been ecstasy. I'm not sure, which um, left left him out of balance. And someone who again a tremendous amount of work. It left him out of balance for for several months, and there was a, there was a quality to which sometimes it was totally overwhelming. I mean, I won't go into the details, but it was it was very very difficult, and he actually. Uh, consulted with different well-known teachers about this. And some of them said, go right into it. You know, go right into this phenomenon. And he actually, one of the people he talked to was Jack. And Jack did not give that suggestion. Jack suggested the gentle approach, which is maybe his, <laughs> his way. <laughs> he suggested the gentle approach, and it actually seemed to be the right way to deal with that. You know, so not 
doing this, you know, just, I will hang out with the difficulty if it kills me, you know. Uh, but rather, he, he went into it to some degree, but then did a lot that was just sort of supporting and keeping him going from day to day. And I think some, and, it, and when one is best, it's hard to know. But it's, um, yeah, does that, does that help some? Yeah. Do we have um, time for one more, or should we? Maybe, maybe one more question. Yeah. Where I run into this is in pain. Yeah. There are tremendous. I've run through a period where I have tremendous difficulties. You two are the child of mine. Yeah. And um, one of my difficulties was to judge how much pain I had in comparison to other people around yeah. me yeah. and how unfair that was. Yeah. Even though I know there was a lot of positive things and it's opened my heart to things yeah. that I would never have been open to, yeah. I still have that little battle inside me yeah. saying, why me? Like, yeah. You know, that kind of mother type of attitude. Yeah. I, I, I think I've resolved that. Yeah. Well, it's... it's um, it's like I was saying at the beginning, when we open to the difficulties, we open to all those voices. And it's those, uh, uh, we open because we have this strongly conditioned tendency to think that if I have difficulty, it must be my fault. So it's very freeing to start to just say, oh, that's that voice happening. And to have some distance with that and, and to be able to see that more clearly. And, and that's where I think the mindfulness is so important. Because um, in putting this into practice, it, we need some tools. You know, we need the, t- the mindfulness tool is almost like the most basic one. It's the mindfulness which can let us say, oh, there's that voice again. You know, here's, there's that thought again. There's that voice. And so when it comes, it can be this wake-up call and says, oh, this is happening right now. Do I have, uh, can I have some choice in how I deal with that voice? Do I have to keep listening to it? Or can I say, oh, there's that voice again. Bye. Which is possible, but it, it demands that mindfulness. And the way the practice works, as, you, as I'm sure most of you know, is just by over and over again hearing that voice, getting lost, but then finding ourselves, coming back, getting lost, coming back, getting lost. And in doing that over and over again, we gain enough Right? There, right? There's something that happens, right? There's something that happens inside for most of us at that moment, you know, that's not actually that different from the big stuff. And if we can, so maybe this is an invitation on your way home. If you, if you have a minor difficulty because a red light occurs right when you wanted to go through and you really got to maybe get somewhere, um, it's a chance to open to difficulty in the small way or to do that with the small disappointments of the day like me being on that food line and having to wait a little while. And be mindful with that. See what it's like. Feel it in the heart. There's a little bit of pain in the heart with these small difficulties. And if we can open to, to those, we both um, have our practice be more continuous. So it's not we're not just practicing when we're having a good time. But we're practicing more and more in all of our lives. And then in, do, in working with the small stuff, we get training for the big stuff. So, that's probably the last secret, so. Um, 
I hope, th I hope this hasn't been too much of a bummer, as my <laughs> sister suggested. <laughs> uh, it, it actually, yeah, it actually, I mean, I, I want people around me just to say, keep on taking those small difficulties as a chance for practice. You know, it's like I could, maybe we should make a tape or something and have that, because I, I need those reminders, you know. I think we all do. And when we have those reminders, then our practice just opens up more and more. And the beauty is there more and more as well. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.